0: And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Open your Bible. To Romans 3. I've been encouraging you, if you're newer and you're not sure about how or where where things are found in the Bible, underneath the seat in front of you or within a few uh, seats is our pew Bible. We've told you, first of all, if you don't have a Bible, take that home. We'll replace it. Um, But I'll just give you the page numbers. I I do want you to know I won't keep doing this, um, but for this series, I want to be able to do that and so Romans chapter 3 would be on, in, near the back of the Bible on page 120, 120 for those of you who are not sure where to look. Well, we come back again now to our fourth in this series on God's wrath and his salvation. And we deal with this subject of God's wrath and it really has been, if you think about it, a journey. We've seen how prominent this idea of God's wrath is in the Bible. And it is a wrath against all who sin. And that becomes a very hard truth for any of us to hear and understand because we all sin and are all rightly judged guilty before God. If you already have doubts about that or questions, then I would ask you to just go back and hear the other sermons where we look at the scripture and see how it describes all of humanity. We are all judged rightly guilty, guilty before God. And I will also say this, if you don't believe that, if you're going to right now reject that, then everything else that I say really won't matter. There is no need of salvation. There is no need of, a, of of being rescued from his wrath if it lies in your power to do so. If you are able to contribute or help your way into heaven or into salvation, however you might want to say it, then there is no purpose in understanding what I am about to say. Now, we also learn, though, that though we are judged guilty before God, that that is where the good news comes in, and the good news has a word that the Bible uses for it. It just simply is the word gospel. The word gospel is good news, glad tidings, and that's, how it, that's where we find ourselves. If we are judged rightly guilty before God and subject to his wrath for all eternity, we need some good news. What is that good news? And where we, where we see the gospel, what we actually see is the person of Jesus. But we have to have a biblical Jesus, not a Jesus of our own creation, right? So God in human flesh, that God took on flesh, the son became Jesus. The fancy word for that is the incarnation. We see it in the the word Emmanuel, which is one of the names of Jesus, which simply means God with us, God with us. Jesus, who is without sin, Jesus, who is without the curse of Adam that we talked about last week, Jesus, who is our perfect sacrifice, something we looked at in detail last week, the perfect sacrifice who stood in our place, our substitute. And he died on the cross, not for his sin, but for our sin. Jesus, the risen Savior, who on the third day rises from the grave. Historically, it was attested by hundreds. And in doing so, what he did was he defeats the power of sin, The Bible says it as simply as it can be said. The wages of sin is what? Is death. You sin, you must die. There's no other way. You must die. The wages of sin is death. And so in his death, Christ died our death. But how do we defeat death then? You're dead. Well, he rose again as he promised on the third day. And in doing so, he promises that he will raise us from the dead. And so not only is the power of sin destroyed, but the power of death is destroyed. And so Jesus becomes that key. He's the one who defeats the enemies that we say over and over again that you and I cannot defeat. We can do many things in our life, but we will never defeat sin, Satan, and death. We can't. We can clean them up, we can adjust them, we can hide them, we can deny them, we can call them not sin, but all of it is still real. We sin, Satan is alive, and we are under his power apart from Jesus Christ, and we will all die. He is the triumphant one who is now at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus has triumphed. He is the one who is going to return, therefore, and judge the living and the dead. And so the gospel is so important for us to understand, but it is also important for you to remember that the gospel is not what you must do. And many times when you ask a person, what is the gospel, they will talk about what you must do, and that's not right. What the gospel is, is what God has done through Jesus. The gospel is what God has done, what God has accomplished. And then after that, once you understand that, the command is to believe that gospel, believe that good news, cast your hope, your trust, your life, your breath, everything about you upon him. And the promise then is that you will be saved from the wrath to come. I thought about doing an entire sermon on this, but I chose not to. Let me do a little bit, though, before I get into the bulk of my sermon. The wrath of God is real. We've talked about it, that it's like a raging river and all of humanity is in it and there is no escape and it's all hurtling toward that ocean of eternal wrath that is called hell. And only in Christ can we find escape and salvation. Now, that wrath of God it's something that brings many curses upon us. It's not a, a concept vaguely stated in Scripture. It is a reality that's based upon God's justice and his honor, and it has real consequences. So again, we like to make the wrath of God very abstract. And as long as we keep it abstract, it's not real. But the Bible makes God's wrath exceedingly real, D.A. Carson, who is a well-known theologian, says it this way. He says, Is the magnitude of our sin established by our own status or by the degree of offense against the sovereign, transcendent God? Here's another way to put it if you're not sure what he meant. Is it not an infinite sin to sin against an infinitely glorious God. If God is infinite and infinitely glorious, and he is your creator, and you sin against him, does it not become an infinite sin? It's not just a little oopsie. When you turn away and reject him, which is the reality of all of humanity, the wrath of God is rightly placed upon you because you have rejected the only thing worthy of glory. But God's wrath is not found in destroying you or killing you. Rather, God's wrath is something that he then will reveal for all eternity, and it is to be experienced for eternity. It's what we call hell. It's not a place where you go just to hang out with your buddies, doing the same stupid stuff you do now. It is a time in which you now enter into the fullness for all eternity of God's infinite wrath. It's a literal place the Bible makes it out to be where God reveals only one small part of his being to you and it is his wrath. And it's described in the Bible in many different ways as, as eternal death in the sense that you are now outside of any experience of life. Right now, if you're not a Christian, the Bible would say you are spiritually dead, dead in your sins. But God in his grace still allows you to experience some aspect of life. You still get to enjoy, this. I say this often, you get to still enjoy the taste of ice cream. You still get to enjoy a cool breeze on a hot day. You get to smell the aroma of flowers. You get to have the thrill of seeing somebody that you care for and you love. You get to enjoy the birth of a child. You get to have all sorts of enjoyments, day in and day out, that God just allows you to do. The Bible says it this way, God causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust, but in hell... All of that's taken, and all it is is a state of permanent dying. Jesus makes it very plain that hell is exceedingly easy to enter. In fact, all you have to do is be born. It's described as a wide path with many on it. In Matthew 8.12, Jesus says that hell is a place of conscious suffering that is described in three different ways. Just in in Matthew 8.12, he uses three descriptors for it. It is outer darkness, there is weeping, and there is a gnashing of teeth. There's no grace. There's no mercy. There's no kindness. There's no patience, no relenting. The dam that held back his righteous wrath has been broken, and it's yours for eternity. And that suffering in hell is not some weird grace of God where it eventually cleans you up so that you can enter into heaven. It is simply judgment forever. And we get a small, tiny glimpse of that wrath, when we consider Jesus on the cross, where we all know, if we, you've read the Bible, any, you know in Matt. Mark chapter 15, where Jesus is on the cross, and he cries out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then it says that he gave up his spirit and died. that That was that time, that moment when he who knew no sin, the Bible says, became sin on our behalf, in our place. And when that took place, his father turned away from him. Instead, he poured that wrath that was mine and yours upon his son. And he cried out. It's that withdrawal of the smile of God that we long for and we experience so often and yet seldom give thanks for. And it's forever the frown of displeasure by your creator in fact the bible portrays hell as god's pouring out of his here's the word it literally were used it is hell is god pouring out his retribution upon all who reject him And all of this comes through the righteous judgment of God. So in Revelation 20, just listen to this. Revelation 20, verses 12 to 15, it says this. And and this is a vision of the end when all of this comes about. And I saw the dead, the great, the small, standing before the throne. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds." And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the death, dead that were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire, and lake of fire is hell. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And that, beloved, is what awaits all who are not saved. From the wrath of God. All right, so that's very negative. But I think that we are experts at avoiding that reality. In fact, I know we are. That is the reality. What are the blessings? And if that is the cursing that comes to all who reject him, whether some of the blessings of being saved from that wrath. We can say, I am thankful that I am saved from the wrath of God. That is not me. I don't have that. All of you who are in Jesus Christ through faith, all of you can say, none of that applies to me. That is good news. You're like, yes. But that is not enough. What I want to help you see is that God not only saves you out of that, but he puts you somewhere. He puts you into a state of blessing that is beyond our comprehension and certainly beyond my skill as a speaker to describe, but we will try. So what I want to do is lay out for you the benefits of salvation this week and next. So we are saved from the wrath to come, but to what are we saved? What is the outcome? And so with that, I want to show you three of them today, and then we'll look at some more. We can't look at all of them. Uh, Time just will not allow us, but we will look at the key ones and and, and try to make comments about some of the others as well. What are the blessings of salvation? Three of them today. The first is justification. Justification. Now, you need to listen. This is a little bit more theological, but I'll seek to make it accessible. This is the key blessing, all right? This is, this is the key one. This is the key blessing that comes with salvation. And without it, none of the other blessings would exist. None of them. You have to have a way to be justified before God. Why? Until you are Until you, a guilty sinner, under the judgment of God, can be declared righteous by God, nothing else matters. Do you understand the problem? I am guilty. I have sinned. I have righteously, I I have infinitely sinned against an infinite God. God is righteously and properly angry with me. I am under his wrath. I am under his judgment. How then can I be right with him? That's the issue. Everything else doesn't matter. And the reality is that the Bible tells us that none are righteous. See, there's the problem. We can't fix our unrighteous state before God because we're already unrighteous. You and I are not born into a state of neutrality. And that's how we kind of look at We look at and it's not hard to figure out why. You look at that little baby, and he's like, what a great little baby. He, he's, he looks so innocent. He's not. He's a little wretched sinner. But he looks cute. But he's a wretched little sinner, just like you are a wretched big sinner. And that's the reality. And, and until you get comfortable with that, you don't have to be a weirdo about it, but that's what's re- going on, right? You have to deal with that. The child is not born in a neutral state, and now he just has to do some good things and just kind of earn his way, rest the way into heaven. You are already born under the curse of sin, and you are already in an infinitely deep hole that you can't get out of. And even if you got out of it, you still would not be righteous. You'd just be neutral. So how do we get into that state? What's our hope? In fact, I have, I have sent people away who have per- said that they think they're good enough or that they can make it or that they just need to work with God on this and we'll get it. And I have sent them away after talking with them and say, tell you what, this is up to you. I can't make you, but it's up to you. You go away for a month and you do as best you can. You do it, man. You, you agree that you got to be This, you got to be good. You got to be perfect. You got to have all this. And if you try, you'll make it. That's fine. I won't meet with you anymore. You go away for a month and then come back in a month and we'll see how you did. Just, I'll ask you questions. Most of them don't come back, but they're not even really interested because they're still thinking that they're pretty good. How would you do? How did you do this week? You husbands, you love that wife of yours like Christ loved the church every waking moment of your day, right? You wives, you, you submitted and, and showed respect to your husband in everything, just like Paul commands, right? Children, you obeyed your parents as under the Lord in a way that caused your parents to fall on their knees and cry in thanksgiving for how good you are. They embraced you and said, thank you, my son, for being such a godly son. At work, you never once shirked your duty. You never were once lazy. You never once wasted your time. You have obeyed every law, right? You're failing right and left. How will you be righteous? Where's your hope? How are you going to fix that? How are you going to resolve that? You can't. None are righteous, not one. So how then do we have hope to stand before a righteous creator? That is what justification is about, If his standard is absolute righteousness, then we fall and we can only expect his wrath. So let me frame it a different way. How can a person be just before God? Or how can a person find himself right in the eyes of God? And the answer is, again, the gospel. And that's why we have to get the gospel right. That's why we talk about the gospel in our prayers. We sing about the gospel in our songs. We're reminded of the gospel in the Lord's Supper. And that's, if you have a notice almost every Sunday woven one way or the other into the sermon, because what we have to have daily is a reminder of the gospel and that this is where we rest. And when we get the gospel right, when you understand it and you rest in the gospel and you believe the gospel, you have one blessing immediately upon you. It's called justification. That is the key one. Simply put, you are justified. And what that means is that you have been declared by God to be righteous. Key word there, declared. Declared to be righteous, that you are now in a right standing before the Holy One. But it's not due to your performance of obedience ever, your best efforts or anything else. None of those things will ever be factored into your justification. It is solely based upon Jesus Christ, who is our substitute. We are imputed. Here's another word. I'll explain it. We are imputed his righteousness. So what's imputation? Imputation simply means to ascribe or transfer something from one person to another. So I'm going to give you the simplest one. I remember being taught this years ago in a class called uh, Discipleship Evangelism and just how to share your faith. And when you're trying to describe justification, you need to say, so how does a wretched sinner become righteous. And so the, the the illustration is very simple. Here's you, and this is your sin. So this is you, this is your sin, and it weighs upon you and covers you, and you are declared guilty. And here's Christ. And what happens is it's called double imputation. God transfers your sin to him, and he dies for you. In the same way, here is Christ. Now, we're going to call this absolute, perfect, eternal, infinite righteousness. This is Christ's righteousness. And here are you, the wretched sinner. Your sin is transferred to Christ, and he pays the penalty. And he transfers his righteousness, and it now covers you. That is, simply put, the doctrine of justification. And it's complete. You don't become more justified 10 years later. Never. Never. Not one of you, you may, and and we all tend to fall in that. We, We start to think it's up to us later on to keep it going. But justification is a moment where God imputes upon you the righteousness of Christ, and you are now declared to be righteous, not because of you, but because of Christ. And you'll never be more justified than you are on the moment you believed what you then do will grow in your salvation that's called sanctification that process of becoming more holy and godly and so but none of that adds to your justification you are justified fully and completely at the moment you believe and it continues into all eternity so on the day of judgment think about this and answer in your own mind On the day of judgment, you stand before Jesus Christ. Will your salvation be upon your righteousness and goodness? Or will it be Christ? Will it be that you, well, I asked you in my heart, I trusted you, and I went to church, and I did this, and I did that. Is it going to be that? Or on the day of judgment, will you say, I plead Christ? I got nothing. I got nothing but Christ and his righteousness. If it's yours, if you're going to be pleading you and what you're doing and your self-improvement, then you should despair because he's already judged you to be the sinner. But if it's Christ and his righteousness that we receive merely through faith, then we are truly in an enviable position because he alone is the righteous one. And now we, because we have his righteousness upon us, We are declared by God to be just because he is righteous. And so in doing that, God shows himself to be fully just because he punishes our sin. He doesn't just pretend it didn't happen. He has to punish sin. I'm, I'm not completely convinced all of you understand that. All your sin, every sin you've ever done and will do, must be punished. The only issue is upon whom will that punishment have it happen. That was awkwardly said, but I think you understand. For the Christian, the punishment will fall fully and only upon Christ. For the non-Christian, it will fall fully and only upon you. And so in the gospel, God shows himself, I am a just God. I will not wink at sin. I will not turn away from it. I will not ignore it. Instead, I will pour it out fully upon my son and declare you righteous. So let's look at some passages. Romans 3, I told you, page 120. Romans 3, verses 19 to 26. And we can quickly get into the weeds here. So I got to show self-control and not get too deep. But let's look at this passage together. Romans 3, 19 to 26, he says, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law. Okay, so God's given to the Jew the law, but he also gave to the non-Jew, the people who never even knew in the Old Testament, and anyone who is not born as a Jew raised up in, in the Jewish faith, he's still giving you the law and it's written on your heart so that you can go anywhere in the world and they still have this sense of right and wrong. They, they know it. They understand that that's wrong and that's right. That's just the law of God written on our heart, okay? And we oftentimes think that the law is given so that we might do it and therefore earn our way into heaven. But he says this, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law for what purpose? So that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. So actually, the law now shuts you up. If you're gonna follow the law, you're not gonna keep it. Why? Because, verse 20, by the works of the law, no flesh will be, Where's what's that word? Justified. No one will be justified by keeping the law. Why? For this reason, through the law, comes the knowledge of sin. The only thing the law will ever do to you is show you how bad you are at it. It will just reveal to you your sinfulness, and you are going to keep saying, I just got to try harder. Beloved, you failed already. If you say, I got to try harder, you've already failed. You can't undo sin. And so it shows you, I am a sinner. It shuts your mouth and so then he says in verse 29, or 1, 21, but now apart from the law, here's the key word the righteousness of God has been manifested or made known. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, that's just the Old Testament. What is it? Even the righteousness of God, and it's through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. So now he's making this, this, this separation between what you're going to try to do, your works, and what it, and then having faith in Christ. So he says, for all, verse 23, have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. So how then can we be justified? Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. We could just do the whole sermon on that verse. It is a gift God gives to us. It comes to us by grace. Remember last week, unearned favor. We don't do anything to earn it. In spite of us, we receive it. So this justification, this declaration of being righteous comes as a gift because God shows us grace. But it comes specifically through this re- thing called redemption that we'll look at later today. And where is that redemption, that purchasing out of some enslavement? Where is that found? It's found in Christ Jesus. Well, so what do we then learn about Christ in verse 25? Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. Through faith, that God, that that we won't get into it in depth, but the word propitiation, He deals with our sin and His wrath toward us through Jesus' death. This is to demonstrate his, God's righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be the just, be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So where's the boasting, verse 27? It's excluded. So here's the thing. Through Jesus Christ, this righteousness is found, not in ourselves, but in Christ. And he does it apart from any effort on our part, because any effort on our part only brings judgment and an awareness of our sin. But in Christ, he brings us this justification, and it is ours to enjoy because we have trusted in Jesus. So it's through faith, and always through faith, we're going to trust in this. We're, our hope rests there, but it's not the faith that saves you. It's God's grace that saves you. Simplest illustration I can give to you in, a, in some vague way is it's a difference of agency versus instrument or instrumentality. You're a starving person and you need to live, and I give you a bowl of soup that's nutritious, and you take a spoon and you start bringing it up to your lips and you start taking the soup into your body and and in it, it begins to give you the nourishment and you're saved, right? Would you attest salvation to the spoon? No. The spoon was merely an instrument that brought the thing that saves you into your mouth. It is that soup. And in the same way or similar way, it is God's grace that saves you. And it's through faith in Christ that you receive this. You trust in him and him alone. Go over one page, 121, if you're in the Pew Bible, to chapter four, verses two through four, five. Four, now he's going to talk about this guy named Abraham. If you don't know who he is, don't worry about it. He's just very important. But if For if Abraham, he's talking about back in the Old Testament when Abraham was called by him and he believed and he was saved. So he's talking about that, but it's going to use the word justified. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And Abraham and it says this, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him, meaning in God, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Here we see that idea of imputation and and God declaring you as righteous. And he brings out Abraham because the Jews at that point had somehow gotten Abraham into being, it was through his good works that he was a righteous man. He's like, no. And the reason he keeps bringing up works and us not being able to be saved by our works is for this simple reason. That's our default setting. Every one of you struggles with this, even as a Christian. It's just in us to think it's up to us. We got to do something. And that's what he's showing. He's like, no, it's not through that. If he could do that, we, he would boast, just like you and I would boast. And in fact, I have listened to people boast and tell me why they know they're going to heaven. The reality is, Abraham just simply trusted in God and his message. And he says, God declared him to be righteous. One more passage, just one. Turn the page, perhaps, to chapter 5, verse 1. So now he's spent four chapters working on this justification that we must be declared righteous by God through faith that occurs, but it's by God's grace. It is God declaring a wretched sinner to be righteous. And then he says this in verse 5, and here we see the blessing of salvation. Therefore, notice the verb, having been justified, not being justified. It's not an ongoing event. It's not, therefore, while we are being justified or we shall be justified. This is, we have been justified. How? By faith, we have now peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The blessing of justification is that we are declared righteous, though we ourselves are a sinner. But what that happens to us then is we are no longer his enemy. We are no longer under that frown of God. We are no longer under that condemnation of death. We are no longer children of wrath, sons of disobedience, dead in their trespasses. We have been declared righteous. We will always be righteous. And you say, yeah, but you don't know what I did last night. I don't care what you did last night. It has no bearing upon God's declaration. This doctrine is what separates Roman Catholicism with the Christian faith. In the Roman Catholic faith, you are not just having been justified. It's not a past event. You are in a constant state of trying to become justified, and it starts when they baptize you as a baby and continues throughout your life, and then after your life, they claim in purgatory until you have done enough good to pay for all of your sins, and finally, you can get into heaven. It's evil, it's wicked, and it's unbiblical. It's built around your works, and the Bible makes it as plain as it can be. It is by grace alone. So that's the key one. Justified. You have that. So you've been saved out of God's wrath. And the thing that you have now is that God has himself, the only judge that matters, the only opinion that matters, God has judged you to be righteous because he has declared it himself. Second is redeemed. You are redeemed. So go to 1 Peter chapter 1. That would be page 180. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, this redemption. I want you to see here in 18 and 19, he says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but instead you were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless. What is it? The blood of Christ. The purchase price for those of us who are dead in our sins and enslaved to sin is God's son. And he purchases you out of this enslavement. So the way you get out from this enslavement to sin will never be you working hard enough, but it will be only in the fact that you can plead that the blood of Christ is enough to free you from it. So go over to Colossians, and that's on page 157. In Colossians chapter one, and we'll see another passage. Again, you understand I'm flying very high over these doctrines, but I hope that I'll do them sufficient to encourage you. By the way, that is my goal is to encourage you. This redemption that is paid results in a wonderful reality for all who follow Jesus I want you to see if you can see it here in the passage. There's a wonderful reality for all who follow Jesus, all who have trusted in Jesus. This redemption has done something. So in verses 13 and 14, for he, that's the father, God the father delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Now real quickly, right there, the domain of darkness is where his wrath will be revealed for all eternity So he's taken you out of that. So you've been saved from the wrath of God, but it's not to nothing. You've been saved from the wrath of God and you're moved into something else. It's the kingdom of his beloved son in whom, so it's in his son, in Jesus, in whom we have redemption, which is what? The forgiveness of sins. Beloved, you're forgiven. Everything. It's all gone. You're forgiven. Some of you right now are beating yourself up. Some of you right now are reflecting on how you failed this week. Some of you right now are despairing and frustrated. Some of you right now feel like you can't talk. Some of you maybe were singing some of those songs. You're like, I have no right to sing these songs. You're forgiven if you have trusted in Christ for salvation. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. You are forgiven. Christ has purchased you out of sin. I would say as a pastor, the greatest struggle of Christians is believing this. I would also say the greatest lie that most Christians say is that they claim they do believe it. They don't. You don't. Most of you don't, at least. You hope it's true. Yeah, I mean, you're desperately hoping, but when it comes right down to it, oftentimes you're like, I feel like I need to hedge my bets. You're free. It's like a a man or a woman born into a, a, a slave situation, and they grow up And they're slaves, and one day they're free, and they can't get it in their mind that they can walk away from the land, that they can just leave. It it just, it's it's like, it doesn't change that they're forgiven and free. It's just that struggle. Am I really that free? Yes, you're that free. We are prideful people, and part of that pride is a desire to make amends to God. And so we often uh, act like fools, and we think we're not doing it out of pride. We're not trying to live a certain way out of pride. No, 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 that that wouldn't be right, Pastor. But in fact, it is pride because so often what we're trying to do is just show God we're really trying. And it's because we don't really grasp that he looks at you as his beloved daughter. His beloved son. What do you have to offer? Nothing. But we want to think we do. We, we, we have a perfect and holy God and yet we're imperfect but we're declared righteous. And that which is by nature imperfect, cannot become perfect, but Christ becomes our righteousness. Christ becomes that perfection. So he dies in our place. Our Lord takes our sin and is cast, the Bible says, as far as the east is from the west, never to be recalled, never to be remembered. You will not have one of your sins dredged up and him shoving your face in it saying, see what you did? Your husband may do that, your wife may do that, your parents may do that. But God will not do that. So, beloved, do not be like those fools and go looking for your sin so that you might figure out some way to fix it. It's been dealt with. You've been purchased, it's it's done, you've been redeemed, and you're forgiven. And don't ever, but you will, so I'll remind you of this, don't ever confuse a feeling of forgiveness with the reality of it. They are not the same, and they have no connection to one another. This is true both in coming to Jesus Christ to be saved and the living out the life of a Christian day to day. In both ways, you're like, well, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't feel different. What does field saved mean? But we're like looking for it. And each day I would tell you, do you confess Jesus is your Lord? Do you confess that he both died for my sin and rose again on the third day? That in him I find forgiveness. Yes, I do that. Then the Bible calls that saved. Yeah, but I don't feel saved. I don't care what you feel. I know it's not pastorally loving, but I don't care. That's what the Bible says. And some days you'll feel great. And other days you're going to feel like mud. 1 John says that if we confess our sin to God, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us. Not maybe forgive us, consider forgiving. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Never does he say maybe. Not if he thinks that you're really trying to clean up your act this time. No, no. He is faithful to forgive. And so turn to Romans 3, which we were just at earlier, 121, page 121. This redemption then is the vehicle through which we enjoy the doctrine and the glory of justification. What I'm hoping to show you as we do this is all of these things are, are tied together and they run together. So we, we've already looked at it, but Romans 3.24, he says, we have been being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Our sin has been paid for, so we're redeemed because Christ is the one who paid for our sin. And in that, he justifies us and declares us to be righteous, not by our righteousness, but by Christ's. So it's very important that we repeat this. We're experts in forgetting. In fact, if I were to describe what is the most common thing a pastor does, he is reminding. For 25 years, I've reminded you. And for 25 years, I've had to remind myself. It's to remind you what is. Our sin is always going to be resolved not by our efforts, our faith, our intentions, our good works. It is, be- it is resolved by Christ becoming sin on our behalf. It's his death, and that is, what, that is the way that we were purchased, we were redeemed from sin. And because of that truth, we are declared righteous. Not because of us, but by the righteousness of Christ. And that redemption price then removes us from this thing called enslavement to sin. We had the power of sin over us and we could not break it. We were under it. That's what it means when it says under the law or under sin. It means that that is the power that holds us down and holds us captive. So look at Romans 3.9 just to see. What then? Are we, meaning the Jews, better than they, the non-Jews, which is you and I? Not at all. We have already charged that both the Jew and the Greek are what? All under, that's that power, that enslavement to sin. So what is the hope? The hope is that somebody pays that purchase price because we can't pay it. And it was Christ who did it. And somebody else has a righteousness that we can have. And that is what we get in justification. God purchases us out of enslavement and declares us righteous in Jesus. Go over to chapter 6, which is page 122. Now, I spent seven years in Romans preaching. So if you, some of these things you're like, I'd like to know more. They're all there. And you, I'd encourage you to hear them. In Romans 6, 6 and 7, he says, knowing that our old self, our old man was crucified with him for what purpose that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. What he is trying to clarify here in this chapter is just at the very end of Romans 5, he points out that we're saved by grace. And then people say, yeah, but I have this bad sin I done. He says, whatever your sin is, no matter how high it bounces, God's grace always abounds even higher. It always wins. There's not a point where you say, boom, I'm out. No, if you're in Christ, you're always in Christ. The grace of God is there. So then we being who we are, we start saying, so you're saying, if I sin more, I get more grace. He's like, no, you idiot. That's the Matt Henry translation. No, you idiot, that's not what I mean. And so chapter six, he deals with that. He's like, look, if you have died to sin, why would you live in it? How did you die? Because you're in Jesus Christ. His death is your death. His righteousness is your righteousness. His life is yours. All of it is Christ. And at that point, the power of sin becomes broken. It no longer dominates you. Every true Christian carries that promise within them through the presence of the Spirit. Sin was your master, but not anymore. So the authority of sin is broken. You no longer have to obey its desires. In fact, you cannot obey that desire? Because it is a choice now. You're no longer under its dominion. So the Bible says that we have the power of sin broken, but we still deal with the presence of sin in our life, and that will be eliminated in the end. So go down to verse um, 11 through 14. He says, so even so... Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God, where? In Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. For present yourself to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. That's the new power that defines you. So he says, the first reality of this redemption is to begin to learn to think the right way. You have to learn to think the right way. and That's what most young Christians struggle with. If you're honest, you know that your various forays into sin always starts with you lying to yourself. And if you don't believe that, they're lying to yourself right now. And if you doubt me, let's meet call me, I'll buy you a coffee, and then I'll show you that you're lying. Every one of you never accidentally finds yourself in sin. You never like, don't know how I got here. Huh. You lied to yourself. I lie to myself. We all lie to ourselves. And he says the first step is grasping, this is what God has said is true, so consider yourself that way. Start thinking the right way. But as you learn to think biblically and you start to consider yourself, you know what, I'm dead to sin, so why would I want to do that? Why should I do it? I need to stop this. I need to start looking. I need to avoid putting myself into that situation. And you're considering these things. As you learn to do it, then verse 12 comes into play. As you form a godly mindset, it begins to affect your lifestyle. In fact, I can tell you that anyone who has an ungodly lifestyle, it's because he's thinking in ungodly ways. It doesn't just happen. But as you recognize that I have been redeemed, I'm no longer a slave to sin, that I'm redeemed, then what happens is it starts to put into motion things that you begin to put away. And that's the rest of your life. So don't miss a point. Of redemption, it's God purchasing you out of enslavement to sin, so that you will now be His slave. Look at verses fourteen to eighteen. We'll look at it quickly. For sin shall not be master for over you, but for you are not under law, but under grace. What shall we say? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? No. May it never be. God forbid. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from slit sin, you became what slaves to righteousness. So because I've been declared righteous, and because God has redeemed me out of sin, I'm no longer a slave to sin. Sin is not what defines me. Now Christ defines me. And as I learn to submit under that yoke, the yoke never changes because you're his. But as you learn as a Christian to submit under that, you'll see things change. One last one that we'll briefly touch on, because it interweaves is that of reconciliation. Not only are you justified, not only are you redeemed, but you're reconciled. So that whole wrath idea of wrath of God is built around our guilt as sinners, right? And that God is angry. He is filled with wrath. And one of the things that we learn to do as a Christian is we learn to stop comparing ourselves to everyone else and see that the only standard is God, And then we know that we're guilty. And so we see in Psalm 5 that God says, I hate all who do iniquity or sin. And we're like, well, that's just not right. Well, that's because you're judging yourself to other people. Well, what I've done isn't that bad. It's not against those people. You're sinning against God, and then he hates sin. Therefore, he hates all who do it. But Romans 5, which is page 122, so it probably is one page in the Pew Bible, Romans 5 verse 10 says it well for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. How? Through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So in this reality of, of reconciliation, the world of reconciliation, it's it's Usually in our brain, a two-way street. If you doubt me, sit in with me when I do marriage counseling. Both sides are usually guilty. Husband's pretty sure if his wife would just fix her ways, he'd be better off. And she's pretty much sure the exact opposite. And so my first, late, my first job in marriage counseling makes you want to come and meet with me. Um, my first job is to get you both to see that you're both probably messing up. Maybe one's doing more and one's doing less, but we see reconciliation as well. I'm not going to apologize until he does. Well, you got to know, and you're like, oh, my goodness, grow up. Did you do wrong? Yes, but she, I don't care what she did. Did you do wrong? I don't say it that way. In my brain, I'm saying it that way. Outwardly, I'm like, yes, well... You have no idea what I'm thinking up here half the time. Did you do wrong? Yes. Have you sought forgiveness? But I don't care. Have you sought forgiveness? No. Seek forgiveness. Well, when she... I don't care about her right now. Just you. Just do it. And then you turn around to her. Have you sought Well, I... Uh, and you start the whole thing over again. Oh my goodness! With both of you, just one of you, and preferably the husband as the one who's going to actually model humility. If he would just go to his wife and say, "Please forgive me," and in his mind he's going to battle that. Well, she didn't do this and she didn't do that. And if she, it doesn't matter about her. If you've sinned, just seek her forgiveness. And you make that your model and your practice week in and week out, day in and day out, that as you sin against her, you do it. You do that with your kids. It doesn't matter if it's both ways, but we tend to think of reconciliation as something that we both got to do, but that doesn't work with God. There's nothing that God has done wrong. It's all on us. You're the guilty. When you sin, you did not honor him, though he's worthy of it. And as such, the Bible says, you have made yourself his enemy. He's the creator. You're the creature. He's the potter. You're the clay. You have no authority and no actual ability to go go to God and speak back to him and say, I don't agree with you. Who cares? He made you. You breathe because he lets you breathe. We are in that situation, but that's where the grace of God comes in. Did he wait for you to come to him? No. While you were still enemies. While you were still enemies, God reconciled you to himself. How? Through his son. How? He was your substitute. You who, but you say, but I'm a filthy sinner. No, he has justified you and declared you righteous by Christ's righteousness. But I'm a slave. No, you're not. Well, you are, but not the kind of slave you think you are. You've been purchased out of that enslavement, and you are now his. You're reconciled. The blessing is that God's grace reaches out to you in your sin, in your weakness, and he draws you to himself through Jesus. And so you don't have to hide or resist. Even though a Christian will often still do so, he'll, they'll, they'll hide from God, they'll resist God because they're afraid, because they've screwed it up again. It's unnecessary. He's reconciled you in Jesus. Go to page 157. I'll make a brief comment, and then we'll draw this all together. Col- Colossians 1, chapter 20... Ch- Chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, that's page 157. Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has, and here's the key word, now, now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. You have been reconciled even though you were his enemy. So if you can get that in your head, if you can begin to own that, you will find that you will rest and you will show a hope in you that is compelling to other people. First Peter, he talks about us always being ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. The problem is so often we're, we're strangled by the lies of what Satan says that we're trying to earn his favor. We're trying to get ourselves out of enslavement that we're not slaves to anymore. And we're trying to figure out how we can be friends with God. And all of those things are true. You and I are people who should walk with much hope. And so there you have it three very beautiful, very powerful blessings that are found in Jesus Christ. And not one of them was something you had to do. No work, no labor, no promises, no self-righteousness, no trying the best you can. They're all simple results of finding your rest, finding your hope to be Jesus alone. You say, Pastor, I am an unjust sinner. I would agree with you. But Jesus is the just one who took your place. You say that you've done great evil. I would also agree with you. But Jesus is the pure one who became sin on your behalf. You say that what you have done is worthy of death. And I would agree with you again. But Jesus is the one who died in your stead so that you might have life. You say that you're worthy of being forsaken and rejected, and I would agree again. And then I would point out that it was Jesus who as our substitute became the forsaken and rejected one. That's the gospel. But if you sit here right now and you say you're fine and that you're trying your best and you believe that God will accept it, I will not and cannot agree with you because the Bible says otherwise. Jesus is instead your judge. And he is your jury. And you have nothing to hope for in this life or the next except for his wrath for all eternity. So the issue for you who follow Christ in this room, those of you who can say, I am a Christian, will be, How soon will it be that you begin to see that these are yours? These are the blessings that come to you. Will will today be the day that you finally think that the Scripture is enough? What it says is true is true. And you'll just simply abide in it. Will you embrace that the Bible says you are justified? Will you embrace that you are reconciled? Will you embrace that you are redeemed? And then I leave this final word to those of you who do not believe. This is part of what awaits you when you believe. When you believe the gospel, when you believe that Christ's death is my substitute and payment for my sin, and his resurrection from the dead is the conquering of the death that is mine to have, and I will trust in that alone for my hope of salvation that these are the things that await you. Right now, all you have is the abiding presence of God's wrath, but the moment you turn from your ways and to Jesus alone, these become yours as well. Consider that. Let's pray. Father, as we now prepare to go our way, as we gather with friends or go to rest or whatever it might be, I pray that we might encourage one another in these blessings that will cause us to rejoice all the more in that as we stumble around like blind men and women so often in our life that we stumble around in the household of God. Not in those outside the gates, but that we've been brought in and made sons and daughters of the King. Help us to see that, help us to rest in that. May it encourage our heart. And may we be able to encourage one another in those things. We ask in your son's name, amen.